This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy. Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story, now part of the Marketing Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Brian O'Hare. Brian is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and former U.S. Marine Corps officer. He began his career in a Baltimore bar, the legendary Club Charles, where director John Waters cast him to appear in his film Crybaby. Johnny Depp was in that, if I remember correctly. He was. <laughs> Currently, he, he's an he and Johnny starring with each other. Not <laughs> he's, really. an, he's an award-winning writer and filmmaker living in L.A. His work has appeared in War, Literature and the Arts, Santa Fe Writers Project, Hobart, and other journals. And he's been nominated for two Pushcart Prizes. He was named a writing fellow at the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts and recently served as a visiting writer at City University of New York, Kingsborough. He joins me today to talk about his career and new book, Surrender. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Brian. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. That is yeah, quite quite the impressive introduction. We'll we'll dig into that a little bit more, but uh, before we get into all that good stuff, Brian, tell me, where does your story begin? Well, my uh, story begins with this larger-than-life father, uh, this you know swaggering New York Irishman uh, who was a you know could do everything well. Uh, he was ca super charismatic. He took up a lot of space psychically. Everybody loved him. Everybody wanted to be him, including myself. You know, he flew 307 missions in Vietnam. Uh, you know, flying 100 feet off the deck. You know, saving Marines. Uh, he got shot down. His canopy wouldn't open. Uh, he had to take a knife and like pry the canopy open to eject. Um, so for me, growing up with a guy like that in Pittsburgh, in a suburb of Pittsburgh where I grew up, he's really sort of like the the beginning of the myth in a way for me. And, you know, a lifetime, I think, of trying to live up to that myth in you know, a lot of what this book and my story is about is sort of like surrendering that idea of that myth. Um, 
you know, I was a you know foot uh, football captain uh, in high school in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, as you said, the Marine, uh, the Naval Academy, and the Marine Corps, um, all these sort of like iconic, sort of like um, you know, uh, positions of American manhood. And now, with a son of my own, I have a fourteen-year-old son, and I have a nineteen-year-old daughter. It's you know, there's this question about like, wh what is my legacy to them? How like I was talking about with my father what is my mythology to them and freeing them from this mythology so that they can become, you know, their own people. Um, in your mind, I mean, was there any choice um, to not go to the U S Naval Academy and did, did you have a backup plan or was, were, were you just like, you know, kind of dead set on going there? Well, I got another great question. And I think it relates again to this mythology. Um, you know, I was kind of bred in a lot of ways to do this which at the time seemed really cool because, you know, I think when you're a young guy and you're, you know, before you're 18, you know, we're all striving to become a man in certain ways. And, you know, one of the, the best brand names, so to speak, is the Marine Corps. And, you know, if, you know, the Naval Academy, arguably the world's premier military academy, uh, West Point people would probably disagree, but <laughs> too bad. Um, so my father, kind of, he really, you know, again, he bred me to do that and I was into it and I thought it was great. He called it the man factory, you know, this place where they, they, they manufactured men. Um, I wanted to maybe go to Cornell. Uh, I was a, again, a football player I was recruited to play football at Cornell. I went up to Cornell and I got really drunk, uh, underage, had an awful hangover, but I was really, I fell in love with that place. And there was probably about a two week period when I was like, Hmm, maybe I should go to Cornell. But my father, he just stopped. The guy stopped talking to me for two weeks. And again, when you're 17, 18 years old and you see this guy is almost sort of like, you know, your God, so to speak, or at least your personal household God of your life. That was a really powerful thing. And, um, and he, he really ambushed me in doing that. And I just crumbled. And I was like, sure, I'll go to the Naval Academy. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a mixed, the whole thing was a mixed bag. I got to say, I did not enjoy going to the Naval Academy itself. Uh, I don't think anybody enjoys going to the Naval Academy. Uh, it's a meat grinder of a place academically, you know, um, militarily. The people, though, were fantastic. We were the saving grace of that experience. And same thing with the Marine Corps, too. Um, you know, if it wasn't for my Marines, which, you know, a lot of them, I guess, show up in spirit in surrender. Yeah, I mean, that would have been a really brutal experience. Um, very proud to be a Marine. Uh, but again, it was my Marines that, you know, showed me this love, basically, and took me in and transformed me as a human being. And, you know, I am the person that I am today because of those experiences, but it's, a, it's because of the people and the quality of the people that um, I got to serve with and that I was with that, that made it that experience. Yeah. yeah you know, it's interesting. You know, I'm, I'm 48 years old now and you no, know, I still think in some way I'm searching for my parents' approval somehow. You know? And I think it just never, I don't know if that ever leaves us really. I mean, yeah. You know, and, and, you know, and they're 90, like my parents are like 90 and 89. Um, yeah. And somewhat like my mother's pretty infirm, but I'm still looking for ways to like, 
make her proud of me. <laughs> and you're still, uh, you're still here, a little boy, basically. Yeah, I yeah. think we're all, you know, little boys and girls all the time. And I don't know if you have kids or not, but I mean, again, my goal, like I have to break the chain, I think, in a way. Um, I mean, it's weird because like on the one hand, I do. I want to be worshipped like I worship my father. Um, it's, it's so lame and like, I don't know, weird sounding, but it's true. You know, we all have egos. Um, but at the same time, too, I know that's wrong. And I, again, I want to free these kids from me, from my mythology. And so whether it's, you know, I have no problems apologizing to my, to my kids and saying I behaved badly or whatever, or kind of, you know, letting them know what's, what's going on. I don't, I hope that they know that I don't say stuff or want them to do stuff because it, you know, serves an agenda that I have. My father and my mother certainly had pretty huge agendas. Uh, you know, my father went to NYU. Uh, terrific school but in his mind his dream would have been ah, i should have gone to the naval academy that's where, that's the real thing i should have become a corporate lawyer you know him and you know i i checked all the boxes up to the marine corps part and then when i was getting out of the marines i was like okay i'm 28 i, I cannot continue to live somebody else's dream um and i'm going to become a storyteller basically um he again he stopped talking to me again uh, he didn't talk to me for five years until he died uh, at Bethesda Naval Hospital. And, you know, what a terrible, what a, I mean, he was, again, terrific guy, love him. And he was doing the best with what he had, but unconscionable. And I cannot even imagine doing that to my son or my daughter. Like I would, I would literally rather die first than to make them feel that way and basically again surrender is a way is 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 that process of you know surrendering him and like you're talking about it's not me not looking for approval anymore saying screw it this is who i am um this is the experience that i've had in life and this is what i've learned and you know i'm a 56 year old guy yeah uh, so, 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 so what happened when you were 28? Did you, did you leave the core? Did you stay in? No, I left the core. You did? I mean, okay. it's, yeah. I mean, the, the core wouldn't have me anymore. I mean, I was a, yeah, I was a good Marine. I took care of my Marines. I, again, I always say to the, like, I was a good Marine and I was a terrible Marine. Um, I was a good Marine in that, you know, again, I, I really took care of these Marines. At least I like to think so. And I hope they feel the same way. I think the fact that I'm still in contact with them and friends with them now, 28 years later, I was at a friend's uh, 50th birthday party down in Houston, like right before the pandemic. Um, it was a special connection and it was because of, you know, being essentially a good Marine. But as far as, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it was time to get out yeah. after, you know, by that point, it was the first almost 10 years of my adult life were the Naval Academy and the Marine Corps. And I'm, I'm an artist uh, through and through hundred percent. Um, so that was a very confining uh, experience being at the Navy, you know, Naval Academy and Marine Corps. Terrific. I've got a lot of discipline. Um, and it gave me a lot of great tools, 
but it was time to sort of break out from that. And two, by the time you're 28, man, if I was lucky, like a third of your life is done already. That's a, that's a lot of time. And you're no longer just sort of like a young guy. You're an old young guy at that point. Right. 28, you, you know, most people are well on their way to doing what they're doing. And I remember getting out of the Marine Corps. So my then girlfriend, now wife lived in Seattle. And I remember going, you know, waking up that first day after I was out of the Marine Corps, she left, she was in the Coast Guard. She's a graduate of the Coast Guard Academy, a retired commander. She's awesome. I just remember it was raining outside. It was November and waking up pre-internet, pre-everything and thinking, I have no idea how to go about achieving anything I want to do. And being, it was so depressing looking outside with that rain coming down and just going like, I don't, what do I do? Anyway. Yeah. So, so what happened after that? I mean, you mentioned kind of being, you know, an artist at heart, I guess, when did you realize that you were an artist at heart? Was there some part of you that always knew or. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess it's kind of a smart ass answer. You know, people always ask, people always ask, so how did you get from, you know, how did a guy who does what you do, how did you go to the Naval Academy and the Marine Corps? And I was like, well, obviously I got some very bad career advice. Um, you know, hey, you want to be a storyteller, a writer and a filmmaker? You should go to this amazing engineering school <laughs> and take electrical and fail electrical engineering and get D's in physics and differential equations in calculus and weapon systems engineering. And just like, I just can't even, it kind of broke me in a way. Like I find when I have to like read a manual or something, I, I just, I can't do it because it it's too much of this experience of like, I used to go to these electrical engineering labs and this professor would talk for two hours. Then you'd be standing there looking at a whole bunch of capacitors and wires and stuff. I would have no idea what I was supposed to do with these things. Like even what we were trying to do, you know, I just start like taking wires, like, you know, oh. <laughs> just, and I mean, almost to the point, it was such frustration and as well, as much as, you know, it was a rough experience at the Naval Academy, like, man, getting kicked out or quitting, oh, that would have been the worst. And so here's this thing, you're like, your entire existence is hanging upon this, you know, electrical engineering lab that you have no idea what, you know, what it's about. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if I answered your question. When did I know? I mean, I've always known, but nobody yeah. was interested in saying, ah, okay, like, let's, let's check out creative writing programs or whatever. Nobody even cared. You know, I was a history major. Yeah. I majored in graduation, as they say. <laughs> um, but the great thing though, is I got all these amazing stories, these experiences that I had and these people that I had them with. I mean, again, it was transformative. And oddly enough, sometimes I think about this, I'm like, would I do it all over again? Ooh, I mean, yeah, probably. It'd be, it'd be terrible to know, you know, whatever. I think I would, because I'm really happy with the person and the storyteller that I am now and the sort of the tools that I have and the confidence that I have. And I know that this thing that I'm talking about is the thing that I was born to talk about based on, you know, my father being this, you know, larger than life guy, this like demigod. He trained me perfectly. The Naval Academy in the Marine Corps trained me perfectly to unravel that question 
Um, Again, this thing that we're talking about with our parents and all of our parents in a way are kind of like demigods. I mean, they're these huge people from our, you know, from the very first day, they can stay up as long as they want. They can drive a car, they can drink beer, they can do all this stuff. And they have this kind of mythic status. And so it doesn't matter whether your dad was like, whatever, you know, worked for the city or I don't know, was an accountant. Mine just happened to fly jets in the Marine Corps. And it's kind of sexy. Right. Um, But all of our parents are kind of huge in a good way or a bad way. And they maybe too, even at the beginning, like I thought at the beginning, my dad was in a good way. In some ways it was, but also too, it was, it was a lot. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like he had a very big shadow. Huge shadow still to this day. The guy's been dead since 98. Um, I often think about what would it be like that he was still alive? And I think it's, again, you know, it was, it was awful to see him go out the way that he did. He did not deserve that because at his core, he was a very good man and he helped a lot of people. Um, and he he's the guy, I think, in a lot of ways that lit this sort of fire of storytelling in me. And, you know, again, he was the reason why that I was a good Marine, because he taught me about leadership and about taking care of people and the, you know, being having a sincere interest in people and not just as things where you can sort of climb up to the next level on and I guess in some ways it was kind of good that I wasn't sticking around the Marine Corps because it made it really easy to make, if I had to decide between supporting one of my Marines or advancing my career, um, my Marine always went out because it wasn't going to be a career. Um, so anyway, yeah, my father cast a huge shadow. Yeah. And I promise we are going to talk about this, but but I got to know that that day, you know, you woke up then girlfriend, now wife in Seattle, it's rainy. You're questioning, how am I going to do what I want to do? What happened next? Like what you had, how did you get a break or how did you enter sort of this field of storytelling that you wanted to enter? Oh God, it's such a long path. (laughs) And again, this is pre-internet too. And, you know, this is like 1994 and, you know, very few people, not very few, but there's, you know, there's less and less people all the time that remember what that world was like. It was like talking about horse and buggy days. Um, I just kind of bumbled along and went with my, I've always been an intuition guy, a gut guy. And I think that's how I got to this point right now, because even with those 28 years of, again, this larger than life guy trying to dictate, Hey, this is, this is what you should be doing in life. Um, I always knew that this was going to be it. I was always going to be sitting here, you know, at age 56, having written a book and having made films. So I just took, you know, it was the whole, like, I got like a free weekly, the the stranger in Seattle. And I just looked at it. Maybe there's going to be some clue in there. I think I found an acting class because that was, I thought I was going to be an actor. And that's a really rough way to make, it's just a really rough, rough way to make it through your life as an actor. And I did that for a while, but it, you know, it taught me a lot about storytelling if you're doing it right about character, but you know, by the 1000th Doritos commercial audition, and I was starting to bring my infant daughter along with me 
or my toddler daughter, you know, you have to drive an hour to get to Venice, California, you know, on the west side of Los Angeles. I live in Northeast LA on a Friday afternoon on the one in 200 chance that you're going to get this awful commercial. It was one of those like, wow, what am I doing here? Um, so, but, you know, how did I get here? I found an acting class and you go to the acting class and you meet one person who, you know, and I eventually I met this friend of mine, Tim Rice, who had a magazine called Movie Maker, which happened to be in Seattle at the time. The magazine's still around, which is amazing because that's magazines don't last. They're like restaurants, um, you know, and from there, they just like met other people and stopped acting. Tim was direct. Tim was directing a documentary on the World Poker Tour that he had like 150 hours of footage. He had no idea what the story was. And he's like, can you help me? So yeah, I need to be a co-director on this and I'll help you. And that started like change my thinking around like, ah, maybe I can get away from the Doritos commercials and try to do something that has more substance. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a very long process, but again, never quitting. I mean, anybody out there who's, you know, following their passions, you can just never quit. There's like, there's no point to it. Um, you know, we all have to pay the rent and the mortgage and kids need to be fed and, you know, beer needs to be in the refrigerator. But I mean, there's just no point in quitting and you can't. I mean, again, this book just came out. I'm 56 years old. It's insane. If you told me in 1994 that it's going to be another 28 years, you're going to have to live your life over again before you get this. I mean, I've had, of course, other successes since then, significant things. This is by far, for me, the most significant. Yeah. 28 more years. It's insanity. Well, you have to be... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, you mentioned a few things there um, where you were acting for a while. But even like going back to your younger days, you were... It sounds like you were acting a bit because you really weren't living the life you necessarily thought you wanted to lead, right? Just going back to that decision not to go to Cornell when your 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 dad, who probably could have written a book in passive aggressive behavior, it sounds like, you yeah. know, um, so you're kind or of- just, or, uh, Irish grudge <laughs> or something like that. I think it was more accurate. He would describe it more as that than passive aggressive because we're pretty, you know, pretty masculine, you know. That'd be anyway, a great name. That'd be, that'd be a great name for- no, that'd be a great name for a whiskey, Irish grudge. I think that would be fantastic. We should start that. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, cause you, so you, you were acting, I, I think, I don't know, for a little bit with um, sort of maybe where your heart was at in terms yeah. of, you know, maybe wanting to please your dad, you know, versus wanting to, to please yourself. Um, but then, you know, there's persistence in you also, right? So the, the, the persistence to sort of make it in a career as a storyteller. Um, you also mentioned kind of a persistence saying not to fail out of the Naval Academy. Yeah. Um, so those, those two, you know, characteristics are certainly, um, are certainly there. And then persistence to get a book published. I mean, these, these don't happen overnight either. Right. So yes, um, a fact. tell me a little bit more about this. What, what drew you, and I know we kind of circled around it. You referenced it a few times, sort of wanting to sort of break the chain. Um, but tell me more about the motivation behind this and your path to getting it, to getting it out into the world. Well, I think, you know, again, like, looking in the back of that free weekly in 1994 for me in a lot of ways in the absence of another plan i think it's always important just to keep moving forward you know even if it's a quarter inch a day and you have to take some sort of like concrete 
thing that you can accomplish. And it's like, okay, so what is that? Even if it's just like taking care of your body, like I'm going to go for a walk or I'm going to eat right or whatever. So, you know, there came this day, probably I'm going to say seven years ago, 2015. I've always had this in my head that I can write. I, you know, these stories are always in my head and I would find myself, you know, coming up with like beginning lines for a story. And I'd be like, oh, that's great. And I just started writing stuff down. And then finally, one day I was just like, all right, I don't rem remember what the specific motivation was, but I went out to my garage and I sat down. I was like, all right, I'm just going to write a story. And I almost, again, pragmatically, you know, I was like, if I can't write a short story, if I can't write a story in 15 pages, I sure can't write a 250 page uh, novel. And so you know, again, this pragmatic idea of just like tackling or mastering a, you know, a 15 page story. And then, you know, I've got, I've always got all these like seeds in my head. I've been collecting these creative seeds, so to speak for, you know, at that point, what, like 48, 49 years. And then, you know, I just like took a couple and I planted them. And I think in, in a way as a writer, I think there's two kinds of writers. I think there's gardeners and then there's architects. Uh, an architect is somebody who's like, I want to write the Empire State Building. And then they sit down and at the end of the period, they're like, look, it's the Empire State Building. Me, I'm a gardener. Uh, you plant these seeds, some stuff comes up, you snip off a little bit, maybe you yank it out, start again. And maybe you think at first it's, you know, it's going to be a rose bush, but then it turns out to be like a stalk of corn or a palm tree or something like that. And that's fine. It's going kind of like where the story leads you. Um, so I just sat down with these seeds and the ones that were the most passionate for me, again, were these guys that I knew in the Marine Corps. And I wanted to write about this transformation that they gifted me with. And, you know, the idea of the stories being about surrendering an idea of, you know, surrendering the mythology you know, whether that was a personal mythology, uh, you know, a familial one, a tribal one, an institutional one. I mean, that took a while for that idea to sort of manifest. You know, you write a bunch of these stories and you're kind of like, oh, I see a theme here. You know, it's again, it's, um, you know, reducing that shadow of the father, as you put it. Um, so, you know, and, and two, part of the thing was just a practical thing. I, I had an idea for a novel and I was like, oh, I need to do backstory. So I'm, I considered the short stories to be like the backstory or homework for these characters in this novel. And at least I would know this world better than trying to do it like in the novel. I would, in I do, I know this world of surrender very well. Um, and then it just sort of became a thing of its own. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, here's, you know, the Francis Keene character. Um, you know, I got to know these people very well. And then again, because I have an ego, I needed to, to other people needed to read them. And so I started submitting to literary magazines. And, you know, when the New Yorker didn't even respond to my email, I knew that I had to change my target. Um, and then I started getting some acceptances. But again, because of that experience, the Naval Academy and the Marine Corps, I'm, I'm friends with rejection and, um, you know, adversity. And so 
you know, same, get rejected a hundred times for every acceptance. Um, and then one day, you know, just looked up, you know, writing opp opportunities for veterans in Syracuse University Press, uh, Veterans Writing Award came up and I'm a pretty tenacious guy. And in 2019, I submitted, heard nothing. Tobias Wolf, you know, probably one of the greatest living writers, you know, today was the judge, huge disappointment. They did the contest again, two years later, Phil Cly, uh, National Book Award winner, Marine. Um, he was the judge and I won. And that was changed everything. But again, it's about not quitting. It's about figuring out, I think what your leverage point is, where you have an advantage. Um, and for me, it was, you know, being a veteran, which is kind of my ethnicity in a way, um, you know, or being a Marine. So that's how it all came about. Yeah, that that's a, uh, that's a cool story. Um, so what's, what's next? I mean, is there a follow-up to, to surrender that you're thinking about or? Well, I mean, I think, I think the next thing is going to be, it's a novel and it may be, you know, I've got a couple of ideas. Um, I can't really elaborate on them right now. Sure. I don't want to deflate the, you know, the balloon or dispel the magic because, you know, there is, you know, there's a little bit of black magic circling right now, but I'm definitely going to write a novel and I think I'm definitely ready for it. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, I always like to say uh, this is about getting at the stories behind the story. One way I, I, I do that, in addition to talking about your life, is uh, talking about pop culture a little bit. So I'm curious, um, when you were growing up, what, what were some of your favorite TV shows? What did you like to watch? Oh, wow. Um, I, okay. Well, I really loved uh, Charlie's Angels because you know, my budding puberty coincided well with that. And one of the stories too, I talk about winning a Farrah Fawcett majors poster. That was that first thing that I did where my parents were like, oh, okay. Um, so I love Baba Black Sheep about Pappy Boyington, the Marine pilot played by, Ro was it Robert Conrad? You know, the guy with the, the, the not the battery on his shoulder. The right, right. Officials. Um, love the white shadow. Oh yeah. The um, basketball, right. That was a basketball show. Yeah. And kind of, could, a, they, could they make that show today? What's that? Could they make that show today? I don't think so. No, absolutely yeah. not. Um, I thought it was a terrific show though. I mean, maybe if I looked at it again, it would probably be pretty cheesy, but again, to a kid growing up in an overwhelmingly white suburb of Pittsburgh, it had this kind of like, I guess it's embarrassing to say now, like authenticity about it. Um, but I thought it was a cool show. And it was one of the things I love about living in Los Angeles is like to really like living in LA, you have to enjoy the weird. It's a very weird town. Um, and I kind of dig that. Like I remember I almost got run over by a, it was like a Rolls Royce or something. And after I got over my adrenaline rush and anger, I realized it was Nicolas Cage, you know? Oh my gosh. But I kind of enjoyed that. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, that's actually kind of cool. Um, and- um, Caster Troy almost ran you over. Exactly. I'm sure, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure it's not the only time that's happened in this city with 
that guy. Anyway, I was at a, a 4th of July barbecue one time and there was Ken Howard, the star of White Shadow. And, you know, he's not like a major star, but to me, he was like, he was this huge thing from my childhood. And it's kind of cool now. I went over to him, I was like, wow, Ken Howard white shadow i said when growing up and you know he thought that was great because who recognizes ken howard sadly he's he's died since then he was a pretty old guy but yeah white shadow what else saturday night live i think so much of my i can't even emphasize how much of an impact that show particularly in the 70s had on who i am god what a what a transgressive show yeah second city tv at the same time uh it was a double whammy you'd watch second city tv from 11 p.m to 11 30 and then saturday night live from 11 30 to 1 a.m yeah those are those are probably the two biggest ones of yeah. the 70s for me and growing up yeah yeah how about music uh who were you listening to in those days uh, well it's weird. Same things I'm listening to today, which is odd because I just read something about that too. It's like, why, you know, when you listen to this music, when you're younger, why do you spend the rest of your life listening to it? And I'm, I find myself a little resistant to new music, but thank goodness I've got like a cool 14 year old and a super <laughs> cool 20 year old and they force stuff on me and they really, they've got great taste in music. And, you know, um, so I'm lucky in that way, but Okay, so I love maybe Stranger. I love doo-wop, like 50s music, because I got to say, one of the great things I used to do with my dad that like was just unabashedly like positive was, you know, if I was going over to your house for a party or something and my my curfew was like midnight, you know, I would I would call my dad like at 1155 and say, hey, all right, could you come pick me up? which meant that I could buy another 25 minutes and hang out till 1225. And then I could sort of like work, my, hustle my dad into going to get pizza. Uh, again, I'm from Pittsburgh and there's lots of great like family pizzerias. And so we used to have this big 78 Chevy Suburban with a big bench seat in it, like a couch. And so we would go get pizza. And at the time there were these oldie shows on AM radio and we, they'd be these local shows uh, there was this one from Brownsville, Pennsylvania, these two guys, Arnie and Mike, and they had the really the heaviest like Western Pennsylvania accents in the world. And then they would play these really like deep cut, so to speak, uh, doo-wop songs. And we would sit there in the dark listening to doo-wop, you know, this sort of like uh, unapologetically like over the top romantic music, um, you know, about love and loss and we would eat pizza and we would talk. So I always loved doo-wop then. Uh, and I was always a big punk rock guy too, because, uh, you know, the ir the budding sort of irreverence, uh, whether it was the Clash or Black Flag or the Circle Jerks or uh, Angry Samoans, uh, the band X uh, from Los Angeles. I mean, so that was always a huge thing too, but I I, I just adore music. You know, I love classical music. I love opera. I love Norteño, you know, all sorts of stuff. And yeah. again, thank God my kids share that as well, because it's something that we have together. We're always sharing music with each other on Spotify. Um, so that's what yeah. I listen to. 
I love that doo-wop story. That's pretty cool. Um, I also want to see a Suburban with like a bench seat in it. I, I feel like the bench seat has gone uh, gone away in, uh, in yeah. automobile manufacturing. Absolutely. And it wasn't like a really comfortable bench seat either. It was pretty, pretty Spartan. Um, and I'm going to guess that we didn't wear seatbelts either. Oh, no. I know. So, you know, we're driving to this like huge piece of metal with this, you know, like it might, might as well have been like a, a the dashboard might as well have been made out of concrete. And, you know, it's, it's so dangerous. Great yeah. car, though. Huge. Probably yeah. got three miles to the gallon, too. <laughs> but it was a cool car. I wish I still had it. <laughs> Like that jukebox over your shoulder, uh, Never which leads me to that jukebox. Leads me to my next question: If um, you know, what's your go-to song on that jukebox? Do you have a go-to song? Um, I'm gonna look at it really quick here. Um, you know, okay. So I'm from Pittsburgh, and I'm gonna say there would have to be the Steelers fight song uh, from 1973. They did a version every year. And it's a polka, basically, set to the Pennsylvania polka. Mm-hmm. We're from the town with the Super Bowl team. Dun, 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 the Pittsburgh Steelers. So that's that's on a couple different uh, versions on there. That would be my go-to, uh, particularly to annoy people when they come over to my house. <laughs> the, sounds of, the sounds of accordions. Exactly. And it's great <laughs> because the guy Jimmy Pohl, of sort of an indeterminate ethnicity, I'm sure it's a shortened version of Polinsky or I, I don't know what it is, whether it's Greek or Italian, but he's got enough of this sort of like Pittsburgh other accent. It's just, it's gorgeous. <laughs> um, on the more serious side, what, what, um, what big lessons did you learn about yourself during the process of writing and publishing surrender? Hmm. Well, I think that's probably a twofold question because I think, From, you know, from just getting it accomplished. And like you said, having this thing to hold in my hand, I think I discovered something that I always knew that I'm a very tenacious person. And if one way is not going to work, I keep trying from a hundred different angles. And I think anybody who is successful in anything in life, you have to be tenacious because at the beginning, nobody cares. You know, everybody's waking up with that rain outside and, you you know, internet hasn't been invented yet, or at least not for, you know, common people. And you just got to figure it out. Um, so it's about taking the initiative and being tenacious and being comfortable with no. Like, I, I, it's not that I don't care anymore, but, you know, you have to, again, you have to become friends with no. I think... And again, probably a deeper question is like, you know, spiritually, I guess, or inside. You know, again, I think it relates. Again, more to this idea of being able to let go of these ideas that seemed so like like they were laws of of the universe or something like that. And again, growing up with this guy that was, you know, like kind of a deity, you know, kind of a, a a minor deity that we would see in the movies or something. And the idea that maybe he, 
you know, being able to go against him and to chart your own course and, you know, be your own man. I think I realized that from this as well. And it, and it made that okay. Like I, I feel no guilt whatsoever that I chose this path and that it's a very different path from the one that I was supposed, supposed to have taken. Cause this is without a doubt, the reason why I was put, you know, in this life by who I don't know, or by what I have no clue. Um, in this idea of love, you know, not to sound too cheesy, but it's, it's really the most important thing. And, you know, this is, this is a book about love too, about, you know, these Marines who took me in, um, and changed my life. So, yeah. I mean, in some ways, just hearing you talk, you, you, you got freedom through surrender in a way. Exactly. Um, which you don't really think of it that way, right? You think you surrender, you might be captured, but freedom through surrender. I think it's a, uh, that's actually going to be the title of this episode. Well, it's a great, I mean, it's a great title. A friend actually, uh, Naval Academy classmate of mine had said, he texted me and we were talking about the book and he said, surrender to win. And I was like, oh man, I was like, you're a genius. That's like Madison Avenue type quality stuff. And he admitted that it was, it's like the, it's an AA thing. Mm. Oh, interesting. It's, but it's perfect. It's exactly you know, it's so weird that I I would have never thought that something, you know, because I just sort of came to this on, you know, on my own or through my own sort of trial and error of hacking through my own personal jungle. But I, I get that. And, you know, it's like I think I mentioned in one of the stories, like when I was in the Persian Gulf and I'd see all these these Iraqi soldiers, I mean, like thousands of them, like who had surrendered and. You know, again, there's this popular conception, especially being an American, we're used to winning at everything in life, economically, um, you know, geopolitically. And I think it's it gets stuck into our heads and it actually, I think sometimes it handcuffs us. And to be able to see these Iraqi prisoners who were very happy that they were alive and that they were not going to have to fight anymore i mean they were you know they'd be standing up on the back of these these flatbed trucks waving and jumping up and down and i mean not all of them but they were happy they weren't you know gonna die basically for a, a madman and because they don't have this connection to like this like winning and not surrendering they're used to surrendering i think um so anyway yeah surrender to win i think is a great way and yes it it it's made me a stronger person it's freed me and again there's the you know the um epigraph and the epilogue and the end of the thing those quotes from hessa you know in the beginning was the myth which is i love it because it relates to like this like biblical like creation of the world we're always going to be like subject to the myth whether it's again hey i used to be a great football player why am i 40 pounds overweight or whatever it is or why can't why when i walk up the stairs you know i'm I'm winded or something and it makes us unhappy or, you know, again, somebody like, you know, our fathers or our parents who are again, just human beings in very fallible human beings um, or, 
institutions, the Marine Corps, religion, uh, jobs, whatever it is, or national, you know, tribal kind of affiliation. Uh, well, I'm an American. This means this. Like, it's, okay, so what does that mean? You know. Yeah. So again, surrendering those ideas to free ourselves. Yeah. And this conception as an American that surrender is a negative thing when in fact it's probably not. Well, where can people pick up surrender? I imagine there's there's a few who are going to want to buy it. So where where can people pick it up? I hope they do because is, that would be wonderful. Um, I would say my first choice would be any great independent bookstore that you guys have in wherever you are here in Los Angeles. It's Book Soup, uh, which is terrific. Skylight Books, The Last Bookstore, Stories Bookstore in Echo Park. Um, Elliott Bay Books in Seattle, Northshire Books, Manchester, Vermont, Atomic Books, Baltimore, Maryland, Headhouse Books. So, I mean, someplace like that, someplace that supports your community and makes your community stronger and who are looking out for you, small business, um, that would be the first choice and they should all have it. Um, you can get it from Syracuse University Press. Uh, if you look up Syracuse University Press, Surrender, you can order it from them. They're terrific people fighting the good fight. Um, and if you come to one of my readings, I'm happy to, you know, have, you know, sell you a book and write some nice things in it. Um, and then if you must, it's available on Amazon. They're good at what they do, but they're trying to kill, <laughs> they're trying to kill your local independent bookstore. Um, but if you don't live near one of those places, get it on Amazon because it's a, it's a, you know, I'm biased, but it's a hell of a good book. Yeah. And if people want to connect with you, Brian, um, do you have a website, social media you want to share? Yep. Uh, probably the best way is Instagram, which for whatever reason um, seems to be the way that I communicate communicate best. You look up Brian O'Hare, that's O apostrophe H-A-R-E. Uh, my Instagram name is, it's well, the handle, I guess, is at B-O-H-A-R-E 13X. Uh, same thing on Twitter. Um, website is brianohare.com, B-R-I-A-N-O-H-A-R-E.com. And between the three of those things, uh, you know, you should be up to date on all things Brian O'Hare. All right. And I'll be sure to put all of that in the show notes. So uh, all of you people listening don't have to write any of that down. Just go to the show notes so you can see all those links. Brian, uh, thank you for letting me uncork your story. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, God, it's been terrific. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.